As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, my name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Fred Watson, and together we are the Space Nuts. Hello, Fred. Yeah, they don't come much more nutty than we are, but it's great to talk to you again, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm well, and you? Yes, I'm all right, thanks. Still that's alive. Good. Now, uh, something that's really got people stirred up at the moment is the possibility that there is a ninth humongous planet in our solar system. Now... We probably need to clarify a few things. We always thought there was a ninth planet called Pluto. <laughs> uh, a committee somewhere decided it's no longer a planet, it's, um, it's too small, and it became a planetoid and then ultimately a dwarf planet, and now we've found Sedna and a few other weird and wonderful um, uh, outer reaches-type um, bodies. But this one sounds like it may qualify. They're, they're referring to it as Planet Nine, Uh, they think it's there. The maths seem to suggest it's there. We just can't see it. Not yet. Mm. But uh, I think we will do. It's a really interesting story. As you say, it, it comes sort of on the heels of uh, Pluto's uh, change of status. Uh, that I think I probably told you before, when uh, Pluto was classified as a dwarf planet, Back in 2006, I saw this lovely headline that accused the, the uber nerds of dumping Pluto uh, because it's the uh, committee of the International Astronomical Union. They weren't just nerds, they were uber nerds. Uh, and uh, and I, I, a lot of my friends are among those uber nerds. Uh, look, it was the right decision um, in terms of Pluto's status because uh, for 30 
years, we've known that Pluto is probably uh, just a, a large member of uh, of this icy or belt of icy asteroids that sits way out in the depths of the solar system, beyond the orbit of, orbit of Neptune. We usually call them Kuiper Belt objects, named after a man called Gerard P. Kuiper, who postulated their existence back in the 1950s. Um, I, I have to say, and I, I can't mention Pluto without saying this, but last year's flyby of Pluto by the New Horizons spacecraft has dazzled all planetary scientists. We um, know so much more about this world, and even though, yes, it is a dwarf planet, uh, that I don't think matters anymore because it is such an informative place about the science of planet buildings, the way planets at the edge of the solar system, uh, small objects anyway, dwarf planets, look uh, and behave. It's it's an extraordinary ordinary success. Uh, but it's uh, that cluster of objects which um, are similar to Pluto, but generally smaller, uh, that is really the nub of this story, because um, there are a whole number of these uh, Kuiper Belt objects, often in very elongated orbits. We know of something like a thousand of them now. Mm. It's quite a large number. And that's enough that uh, people who study these things can look at them from a statistical perspective. And in particular, one of the big names in, uh, in uh, planet searching at the edge of the solar system, a man called Mike Brown, um, uh, who's uh, based in California, he has done an analysis of the orbits of, uh, I think, 16 of the of the, the larger of these Kuiper Belt objects, including uh, Sedna, the one you mentioned, which is uh, a, a, an object that goes very, very distant out into the solar system, the, the edge of the solar system, uh, because of its elongated orbit. Anyway, Mike Brown has analysed these orbits, and he's noticed that they're not just random, they're not sort of all aligned in the same way, or all coming back to the same place, or all actually inclined uh, at random, at random um, angles. They are more like uh, a, a, an ordered group of things that seem to have a predominant direction in space and a predominant angle with respect to the rest of the solar system. And that sort of thing doesn't happen by accident. What Mike Brown and his colleagues have done is analysed these and they've postulated that the only way you can explain these orbital alignments is by having another planet in the solar system. And it's not just a dwarf planet. This thing is a rather big. It's probably three times the diameter of the Earth and ten times the Earth's mass. So would, it, so, be, would it be a rocky planet, or are we talking gas? We're probably talking uh, rock, but we don't know. Right. Um, it's, it's being touted as what's called a super-Earth, something maybe between the size of the Earth and the size of Uranus, and Neptune, and they are gas giants. Mm. Uh, so they've probably got a rocky core with a gassy envelope. So it may have that sort of structure, but but we don't know. Um, what we do know, though, from uh, Mike Brown's analysis is that this thing is very, very distant. It's so far away that it takes between ten and 20,000 years to orbit the sun. Um, and at its nearest, it's probably 200 times the distance of the Earth from the sun, uh, to the sun. In other words, its distance is, you know, um, is much, much longer, much, uh, much, even at its closest, its distance is much farther away than Neptune, which is about 30 times uh, the, the Earth distance from mm. the sun. There's a name for that, isn't there? We, we, don't we it's have called, a unit of measure for the distance yeah. of Earth to the sun? It's called an astronomical unit. That's right. So, it's, so, so this one's two to 300 astronomical units away from the sun. 
At its nearest. At its nearest. Yeah. Oh, my word. That's right. And it's probably got a very elongated orbit, so it's probably thousands of times uh, further away when it's at its farthest point. Um, So uh, it is thought that the gravitational influence of this thing, as you said, it's been called Planet Nine, uh, is what is shepherding the orbits of these these, uh, uh, icy asteroids in the Kuiper Belt into some kind of regular pattern rather than just a random uh, orientation. Because I think they suggest... Uh, that the anomaly they noticed with these outer um, planetoids was that something was influencing it, but it wasn't one of the gas giants that we know of. So yes, that's right. Now yeah. they, they may have discovered potentially what it could be. That's right. So, so you can allow for the, you know, the, the influence of the planets that we know about um, and, uh, and, and then postulate that there's something that you don't know about that will solve the problem of why these things are all aligned in a particular way. But this uh, story, Andrew, has strong echoes of something that happened uh, um, back in 1846. Do you remember 1846? <laughs> I think I've heard <laughs> well, I the do. number once or twice. But... <laughs> yeah, back in 1846, um, there was a, a similar fuss uh, in the world of astronomy because the orbit of Uranus seemed to have peculiarities that couldn't be explained by the then-known planets. Mm. And it was suggested that there was another planet beyond Uranus. Uranus was at that time the furthest known, the most distant known planet. Um, It had been discovered uh, about uh, 60 years before by William Herschel. So Uranus was well known, it was well studied, but people noticed its orbit didn't seem to be behaving properly. So the postulation was made that there was another or another planet further out in the solar system, and indeed such was the precision of the calculations that these guys could suggest where astronomers should look for it, which they did, and in 1846 it was discovered and we now call it the planet Neptune. Yeah. So that's how Neptune was found. It was predicted in exactly the same way as these guys in California have predicted the existence of planet 9. So we, we should consider that there's, what, a 90 percentile plus chance or are we talking absolutes? Uh, we're not talking absolutes, but I and I would pr- probably put it. I think even Mike Brown might put it a bit less than ninety percent. But right. he's pretty he's pretty convinced it's out there. He's uh, sent out some blogs that uh, that uh, say he thinks it's there. Now th- th- there's a little bit more to the story because, of course, as soon as you've got a scientist saying, "Oh, there's another planet out there," uh, a whole lot of other scientists go off and look for it. So people are already looking for it with uh, some of the world's large telescopes. Uh, one of the problems is that the place where you expect it to be at the moment is slap bang in the middle of the Milky Way which of course is not just this gossamer band of light across the sky when you turn the telescope on it, it's just riddled with stars Mm. and uh, trying to find something that's moving very slowly among those stars is not easy. Uh, But I think it will be found and I think our best chance actually comes up in a couple of years when a new telescope, an 8 metre class telescope, one of the world's biggest uh, called the LSST the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope when that starts looking uh, at the whole sky, which it will do every few weeks, it will cover the entire sky, we might start uh, finding some very convincing candidates for Planet Nine out there. And one final point, I know we've been talking about this one uh, at length, but it's just such a fascinating situation. How far out does an object have to be before it's not part of our solar system? Obviously, well, this, this is orbiting the sun at a yes, very, right. very great distance, but it is yep. orbiting the sun, so it would have to be part of the it, solar system. 
That's right. So anything, you're quite right, anything that's gravitationally bound to the sun, and this object has to be, is part of the solar system. We think that the solar system really extends out to a distance which is almost halfway to the next star. And uh, what is out there, and this again is a postulate, but we've, we don't observe this directly, but there's thought to be a cloud called the Oort cloud, a sort of spherical cloud of comets, which, uh, all, you know, from time to time find their way into the solar system. So that is where I think the edge of the solar system is, and it's a very long way off. Okay, so the man who took away our ninth planet may well have um, found another one instead. Another one, yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's a nice thing to do, really. Yes, it? yes. <laughs> I think he was required to. Okay, we checked all four systems and here we go. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, let's uh, just quickly move on to another very interesting situation. And this was uh, something that happened in Australia recently with not only uh, the tracking of a meteorite falling to Earth, but they managed to find it and just in the nick of time. Uh, that's right. So, uh, look, this is a great story and a, and a very Australian one. Um, in uh, the actually the, the the western states i guess you'd say that is uh, western australia and south australia there is uh, something called the desert fireball network and this is set up by scientists at uh, a number of universities including curtin university uh, with cameras which are constantly looking at the night sky there are 32 of these cameras pointing upwards recording the night sky continuously and that means that if a bright meteor and, uh, and bright meteors are usually called fireballs. They're very, very bright, sometimes can light up the entire landscape. One of those things flashes across the sky as it enters the Earth's atmosphere at high speed. Then all these cameras record it, and because you've got them separated over a very wide area, you can actually triangulate and work out what the three-dimensional path of this object was. And with a bit of luck, you can predict where it will fall, uh, if it's a meteorite, meteorites are the ones that make it to the ground, and then uh, mount an expedition to go and try and recover it. And that's exactly what's happened in this case. There was a, um, a meteorite uh, fireball that came in in November, was picked up by the fireball network, triangulated to see where it might have landed. It turned out that it was Lake Eyre, uh, which at that time... Which is one of Australia's iconic inland indeed, salt lakes. Indeed, that's right, salt lakes, yes. Mm. And, and actually muddy on its surface at that time. Not a lake at all, but a, but a mud flat. Mm. Uh, it was... The, 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 the uh, team actually flew over Lake Eyre in light aircraft and thought they had seen... Uh, something, not a crater, so much as a dollop in the mud where this thing <laughs> might have landed, um, and then sent off uh, guys on quad bikes, uh, in fact, the, the senior researcher, uh, heading off looking for it, while the plane circled overhead to say, no, it's on your left there. And indeed, they found it, and they recovered a 1.6-kilogram uh, meteorite, which is a fairly common one. It's a stony meteorite, not terribly uh, exciting, uh, apart from the fact that we now know where it came from, because you can not only tri triangulate where this thing is landed, you can also triangulate backwards as to where it's come from. And this meteorite came, indeed, from the asteroid belt and gives us basically a free geological sample of the material of the asteroid belt. So very exciting from that point of view. And it so all, that, all that money, those millions of dollars we spent trying to land a, a device on a <laughs> on, comet. On an asteroid. You just wait yeah, for them the, to the come. An, <laughs> the answer just fell into our backyard. It, it, it does, but it's, it's fallen into the backyard with a lot of care. These cameras... 
They are relatively cheap, actually. When you're talking about millions of dollars, this process probably, you know, all told, the whole facility costs less than, uh, I don't know, $50,000 or something like that. Really remarkable stuff, maybe a little bit more, but uh, but small money by uh, by the standards of space exploration. So a great way to explore the inner solar system. Mm, fascinating. And uh, occasionally we do get people... Uh, filming these things falling to earth but they're very very difficult to find they uh, yes they are so, so they've done really well to, to locate this one and of course a few years ago maybe not that long ago we we certainly saw evidence of um being able to uh what the effect of these things with that that one um, that came down over russia the chelyabinsk uh, event mm. that's right yes which um once again because um people captured this on their dashboard cameras everybody has a dashboard camera uh in russia uh uh, and they captured uh, many different images of the same thing and were able to triangulate back uh, both forward and back. They found the, the meteorite and they know where it came from. <laughs> yeah, amazing yeah. stuff. All right, Fred, uh, nice to talk to you again and we will catch up again very, very soon on the Space Nuts. Uh, I love it. Space Nuts rock. Thanks a lot, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco... I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.